Welcome to the Strengthening a Palliative Approach in Long-Term Care Alliance podcast, exploring challenges and best practices in palliative care approaches for individuals in long-term care. A community paramedic program to bring palliative care services to people in their homes is helping seniors stay in their homes longer. Today on the podcast, we're speaking with Craig Jones, the Deputy Chief of Community Projects with the Peterborough County and City Paramedics. He brings 30 years of experience to the role and has a passion for supporting individuals in staying well at home. Welcome to the podcast, Craig. Hi, Nancy. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, me as well. Um, I'd like to start by asking you a little bit about your own background and and your experience and and how you came to be in the role that you're in today. Well, it's hard to believe I've actually been doing this 30 years. I started as as many did back in the 90s um, as a road paramedic on the road, helping people and individuals. I saw probably 11, 12 years in that ad management was something that appealed to me and uh, began to pursue those opportunities through educating myself and taking proper courses. I've been Deputy Chief of Quality Assurance uh, Professional Standards. I've worked with Orange uh, in the Comm Centre as a Deputy Chief of Communication Operations. I've worked for the Deputy Chief of Operations for County of Northumberland. I was a Chief for a period up uh, in Halliburton. and that's where I found my true passion for community paramedic. Actually, we were we were lucky enough to obtain a grant uh, for one of 12 services in the province of Ontario at that point in time. And I really uh, saw the value of changing paramedic mindset and placing us in a position where we were proactive and preventative rather than responsive and reactive. So a position became available in Peterborough. I've been lucky enough to end up here as Deputy Chief of Community Programs. When I'm listening to that, I think a lot of people think of paramedics as being what you said, the 911 call, they come out and save people. But I don't think they understand that there is a lot of proactive work being done. So let's talk a little bit about the paramedic program and what it involves in your area. We have an outreach paramedic, a mobile support of overdose response team medic. So they go out and do outreach in the community. Uh, we have community paramedics in a consumption treatment site. And then we have a significant number, so 10 paramedics. Mm. And uh, they work 12-hour shifts. And they're in the community outreach um, supporting those individuals who've been on long-term care waitlist. We have a significant long-term care waitlist here in Peterborough County. So we have about 1,500 people on that long-term wow. care waitlist. Um, so, yeah, so a significant number of individuals that um, are have been identified as needing long-term care but unable to get into long-term care. So our whole goal is to like you previously mentioned, keeping them well at home, supporting their choice to age well in in home, and providing services uh, and supports, whether that be medical supports, emotional supports, mental health supports, uh, and allowing those individuals to do so and stay well at home. Inclusive to that uh, enrollment, we're we're also able to identify those at risk uh, of becoming on the long-term care wait list. So on my 911 side of the house, we engage with my community side of the house, and we say, hey, we've been to this person's house six times in the last week or two weeks, you know, perhaps the, a community paramedic could reach out to see if uh, something's going on, whether that's a med compliance, um, you know, social determinants of health, when maybe there's no food, there's maybe there's no medical care. We can make linkages to a nurse practitioner, a physician to engage with this individual to stay well at home. Uh, 
um, additional resources such as community care, uh, Meals on Wheels services can be put into place. The community paramedics do all of that. They're a giant advocate for the for the patients. They spend a lot of time on the phone with community care coordinators, uh, physicians, nurse practitioners. We're in the home. We're there. We're physically with the person. We can describe everything we're seeing, you know, the empty fridge. You know, when, when I, as a person, go to my doctor's office, they're seeing what I'm presenting to you. They aren't necessarily seeing the true picture. So our paramedics are in a very unique position to be able to provide that picture to the physicians to, to hopefully engage this uh, individual and keep them well at home. They also do such things as point-of-care blood testing, so uh, point-of-care urinalysis. So we have many individuals, mobility challenged, financially challenged, can't afford a cab, can't afford a bus. So we will go to their residence. We'll provide those testing services right there in the home. We're in a very unique position. We're very well welcomed into homes. Obviously, the uniform is a, a position of trust, um, so we're able to easily enter homes once a person's been identified. Um, and then we have one person at Similar role, but very unique in that we provide a tablet with a blood pressure cuff scale and SpO2 sensor, and we provide those persons at home. So at our office, um, there's a paramedic who sits in front of a large band of computers and is able to see alerts um, if the blood pressure or the pulse has changed within a certain, th certain threshold. Um, that way, we can proactively engage with that client to see, hey, did you just take your blood pressure up after you walked up a flight of stairs and you're kind of short of breath and it's high? Or are you sitting in the chair, have been forever, and something may be going on? So they can reach out through text, through video chat, through phone call to engage with that client. And it's a really unique program, and it's a non-invasive way. And sometimes that's all people know need to, to have to feel well at home, to stay comfortable in their home, you know, because they know someone's there. They know when someone's looking out. The paramedics talk to them to look for other conditions that might be concerning. Um, and this prevents 911 calls. Our topic today is the palliative side. And so we do have programs where we provide palliative care support services on our 911 side of the house. So they share that list through us uh, with provision of the client. Um, they are then flagged in our dispatch system so that when the paramedics are responding to a 911 call, they're aware that this person is end of life. And they have a whole different suite of drugs and specialties that they've been trained in to provide these patients um, in order to respect their wishes to stay at home, pass at home, um, and, and be respectful of that choice. Because at end of life, no one wants to be dragged into a merge. And what we hope we will be able to do as we move forward with this program and as it matures is perhaps the 911 side of house initiates the meds, the CP side shows up, takes over care, the 911 side can return to my 911 core business, and we can support the individual and their family um, with the palliative care. I want to go back and talk about the, the waiting list that you mm -hmm. mentioned, 1,500 is amazing. I know also, though, that when people go into long-term care homes, they typically are looking at about 18 months on average to the time of their passing. And so I would think then that some people on your list may just simply not get to long-term care. And so the services that you're providing from a palliative point of view are really important to them as they're at home. Absolutely. It's more the emotional and supportive side that my community paramedics can provide. Yeah, so it's really patient-centered care. That's what this is all about. 
I'd like to also talk a little bit about trust. You mentioned trust and that, you know, they see the uniform, but I also think probably your paramedics are developing valuable relationships with these people with the, and with their families. Uh, oh, 100%. And in fact, that's probably one of the harder aspects of this position for medics, because as a road medic, I deal with you for 20 minutes, you're gone, I'm probably never going to see you again, unless you're a regular client. Relationships are established, bonds are created. And uh, one of the most heartwarming stories I have is that, you know, I have a big burly paramedic. We had this client on our, our list for, for almost two years, and I called him up to say, hey, good news, you know, Mrs. Smith is going moving to long-term care. And he's like, you know what, Craig, not going to lie to you, kind of sad. Yeah. It's so wonderful. It becomes very empathetic um, and, and loving uh, relationship between the family members, like you said, and the individuals. What about support for a caregiver? So I'm thinking about, you know, the senior couple in the home where maybe, you know, one member has dementia or is receiving services, but the other one, it may be vulnerable as well. Yeah, that's where that advocacy role comes in. So we're, we're in a unique position to see, you know, caregiver burnout um, or, or just empathy burnout, compassion burnout. Um, uh, you know, let's say over time, it evolves over a few months of, of heavy-duty care, and they just can't do it anymore. We're in a position to advocate for that through community care services, uh, through a physician, um, through the community care coordinator. We're in, a, again, that unique spot of being there, you know, weekly or whatever the case may be, that we can that we can identify the issue right away and proactively engage with the appropriate supports in the community. Yeah. You have so many community partners. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about your relationships with long-term care. No one knows better than those long-term care workers that that this individual would not want to go to hospital. And, you know, their their capacity may be limited to identify that and express that to the crew. But between the caregiver and the long-term care home and the paramedic, they can respect those wishes, provide the, the suite of drugs that will allow them to improve to a point where the long-term care worker would be comfortable in allowing the, the patient or client to stay home or to stay oh. in the facility. Right. So they wouldn't go have to go off to hospital. Exactly. Then. Exactly. Right. Uh, that, that makes a huge difference, I think, too, for the long-term care staff in terms of their feelings of guilt or anxiety or you know, uh, knowing what, what they can do for someone yep. because they develop those long-term relationships as well. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah 100% they do. And, and you know, like I was saying, like, they know that Mrs. Smith would not want to go to hospital. Mm -hmm. they, they, uh, but in our previous role, we would have had no option because we were bound by legislation under the 911 side of the house. Now, recently, there's been an appetite to recognize that not everybody needs to go to hospital. So there, we call them alternative treatment plants, which which is what the, the palliative suite of drugs is. And then there's alternate destination plans. So we can now, you know, potentially take a person to hospice as opposed to taking them to hospital. So that's uh, one of the unique opportunities that government recognizing that the legislation needed to change to fit what needs to happen in the community. So that's great. Yeah. In your opinion, what do you believe is a palliative approach to care? Lots of discussion and making choices based on the, that inf that well-informed, uh, you know, decision, that evidence-based decision, that knowledge-based decision, and allow people to do that. And we have those conversations to prepare for that and make decisions based on that while we can, while we have capacity to, for sure. Absolutely. I want to talk about culture. 
because mm-hmm. um, you're going into the homes of many different people from many different backgrounds and cultures and very many different, I would think, approaches to dying and illness. Can you talk a little bit about how your team manages that? So that's where that open, honest conversation has to happen. Um, if the person is in the end of life, those conversations are probably going to happen um, as the relationship grows. Um, you know, most more often than not, we're engaged with the client for, for a period of probably months before anything would happen. And so, you know, it becomes that respectful conversation with the, the spouse or the family members to say, okay, when and if this does happen, um, what does it look like for your side for me to be respectful if I'm here or if, if you call me what can I do to assure that I'm respecting whatever it is you want and alleviating pain and showing compassion and empathy um, with without you know doing something to offend you and sometimes these people go on to long-term care do you think that the program is helping to prepare these patients and their families for a palliative approach once they enter long-term care I think so um, by no means are we experts in palliative care by any means, but I think we can share the basics with people. And I think even that is helpful in allowing the families and clients to be more prepared in entering the palliative care approach. Communication, uh, really, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. It's interesting that everyone that I've spoken to from frontline workers, PSWs, physicians, researchers, the conversation always comes back to communication mm-hmm. and those skills of being able to have relationships with people and to truly empathize and to enable that conversation to happen around wishes and goals for care. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. If you had a wish list, what would you wish would happen more in the community or what resources would you like to have? Um, to continue this program or to improve it? Uh, Human resources, as everybody knows, are very expensive. We were provided with a a very solid, healthy budget to do what we're doing until 2024. My overarching career-ending goal is to have this, what we call base funded, so funded forever. That would be my main wish list. And then my secondary wish list would be to be recognizing of the palliative processes and how I could change that from operating on the 911 side of the house shift to my community side of the house so that I could um, allocate one or two paramedics uh, dependent on what the needs of the community were um, to be out there proactively engaging with families rather than the families calling 911 they could call this person that would be sort of you know an overarching goal takes money takes time but I I think the appetite would be there in the community support that and the recognition of what we could do to make the whole process better for for individuals uh, I know they both sound kind of financial, uh, but uh, in order to do what I want to do, uh, it takes the human resource, which is the big portion of of any program, right? Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, when you start to factor in what we save if we don't take a person to emerge, billions. If that person's on emerge, they're t- not tying up a bed. I don't have ambulances on offload. They're out in the community doing what they do. Yeah. So the millions that I would ask for, maybe not so much at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> It's a great rationale and very true. (laughs) Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you. You've been listening to the Strengthening a Palliative Approach in Long-Term Care podcast. For more information about our project, 
visit spa-ltc.ca.